Welcome to Turn on a Dime podcast with your host, Hannah Osborne. Turn on a Dime is the hub for examining the effects of media and cancel culture and how they coincide with past and present political events. Every other week, we'll feature a guest with knowledge on politics, media, or a combination of the two. Tune in every Monday at 3 p.m. for Turn on a Dime podcast. And now here's your host, Hannah Osborne. Welcome back to Turn on a Dime podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Osborne, and today we're joined by Professor of Political Science and Chair of the Social Sciences Department at Piedmont University, Dr. Fry. Dr. Fry, welcome to Turn on a Dime. How are you? Hey, I'm doing good. How are you? Good, thank you. So you are clearly versed in political sciences. What are your expertise in your past with political science? Well, my degrees are in political science. Uh, my training is actually uh, in the law because I also am legally trained with the law school. But in political science specifically, um, law as well as in international relations, so both domestic and international, actually, because you, you usually, when you go to graduate school, have to have two concentrations. Okay. So what drew you to pursue a career in teaching political science? I actually never had any intention of doing that. I was first going to be a lawyer and then went to law school and realized that I wasn't going to be a, lo- a lawyer. And then after getting out of law school, much to the chagrin of my family, said I'm not going to be a lawyer. <laughs> and then I decided to go back to graduate school with full intention of going into the Foreign Services Division at the State Department. And uh, my first semester in my master's studies at Akron, they forced me to go into the classroom as a condition for uh, receiving uh, tuition remission for my assistantship. And I walked into the classroom and for whatever reason, I don't know because I'm very introverted and shy by nature. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed the classroom environment, and the students didn't seem overly bothered by me. So <laughs> uh, I decided at that point that's what I was going to do. It was mm-hmm. a complete accident. It was not. A, it was if I did not have to go into the classroom to get my degree, I almost certainly would not have gone into this line mm-hmm. of work. Well, it seems like a happy accident. How long have you been doing this? Over twenty years uh, as a full-time faculty, a teaching associate, assistant professor. Uh, and teaching assistant 20, I think this is my 22nd year, a little while. I've been doing this for a little while. How do you think that politics have changed from the time that you studied the subject to now as you teach it yourself? Um, Pretty drastically, especially from my childhood years. I go over Mm -hmm. this in my American government class when I talk about parties. So in my youth back in the 1970s, because I'm old, uh, there were liberal Republicans. They existed. Mm-hmm. Our vice president, Gerald Ford Rockefeller, was himself a liberal Republican. There were conservative Democrats in the Democratic Party. Uh, both parties had liberal conservative factions and even moderate factions within them. Still that way when I was in college back in the 1990s, but a little less so in the early 90s. And today... It's unimaginable. I mean, it's just absolutely mm-hmm. unimaginable. If you're in the House of Representatives and you're a Democrat and Republican, y- there's no way that you can possibly be a conservative, <laughs> a moderate Democrat, or a liberal Republican. Mm-hmm. Uh, your career is going to come to a very short end, or you're going to have to switch parties. That's probably the biggest difference I've noticed. In, and I talk about this in political ideologies. We've, we've moved towards what I like to call the hyper-idealization of our country. So mm-hmm. um, these ideologies that exist now have become like these perfectly honed, all-encompassing worldview systems, almost like a civil religion, that have the answers for every single little issue of the day. And when I was a kid growing up, that wasn't always the case. Mm-hmm. It was not always the case back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, conservatives could have moderate views on some issues. Liberals could have moderate views on some issues. And no one really thought anything of it. Uh, Today, it's much more difficult to do. How much of this do you think is because of media? Partly so. Um, I'm. I think that what's really happening, especially with social media, and I have to admit, I'm 
because I'm old and I know old people hate on this stuff all the time, but the <laughs> truth is the old people, and I want to make this clear, this is not a young person's phenomenon. This is not generational. This is everybody because mm-hmm. all the old people on Facebook are doing the same thing that all the younger mm-hmm. people are doing on the other social right. media apps and sites. And I think it's fuel injecting some of this stuff, <clears throat> but I think it would probably be happening anyway, um, just not as much. And maybe yeah. not as extreme, but we can't possibly know because we don't really have anything to compare it to other than the past. And, you know, maybe in the past, because we didn't have the Internet, things were a little different. But we can't possibly know how this country would have evolved if there was no Internet. Mm-hmm. And how would you suggest that people navigate sorting through all the clutter of the media and how all of it wants to scream in your face all the time? That's really, really hard because one of the downsides of my job, there are things I love about my job. Mm-hmm. I mean, I actually love going over this material, although I do admit sometimes it's really kind of sad and depressing. To <laughs> and, and sometimes I have to show pictures of cute puppies and stuff at the end of class. <laughs> I'm not sad. But reading the news, unfortunately, is not one of the happier events of my life. I get up very early in the morning every day, and I spend anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours every single day reading the news because mm-hmm. I am the political science faculty at this school. So I have to know everything that's going on throughout the world and domestically. Right. And it's not very fun, especially when I'm doing American politics. It's a pain. And probably the biggest problem is uh, there's no pretense of objectivity in the news anymore today Mm -hmm. in the past. When I was a kid, for example, growing up, um, I had to actually go to the library to read the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, which I did. I'd get on my bike and squeak over to there. And <laughs> before the Internet, I had to read the physical copies of these newspapers at the library. I knew 40 years ago that reading the Wall Street Journal, it was generally a pro-business newspaper. I knew even at 12 when I was reading it what it was. And I knew when I was reading the New York Times when I was 12, it was generally a more liberal publication. The difference was back in those days, um, you didn't have what you have now, which is these papers are businesses. First mm-hmm. of all, they're not papers anymore. They're on the Internet, and they have to generate clicks. And I don't fully blame them, but they have to do this because they're businesses, and they can't operate in the environment that they that they used to operate in. Right. I mean, I remember when the New York Times didn't even have uh, – they, they only did black and white pictures and drawings. Mm-hmm. They refused to have anything in color. And what a revolution it was in, uh, 20 years ago when they did that. Now – All of them, every single one of them, the mainstream as well as the ones that they copy, um, have what I like to call clickbait articles and titles. And I can instantly read them and know exactly what I'm going to be spending the next several minutes of my life reading. And I can't get around that. Uh, I can sit there and complain and wish that everything was like it was in the days of Walter Cronkite, but we're not going to have that. And that's just a fact of life. So what I talk about in my American government class that And I know it's hard to do, but what I do is I do an issue. All right. So recently we had the issue with the the balloons flying over Mm -hmm. the U.S. airspace and one of them getting shot down over South Carolina. So how am I going to interpret this event? So what I'd like to do now is since everything is political, most everything is ideological, there's very little neutrality anymore outside of maybe C-SPAN on a good day. Um, Don't don't try to deny yourself. I have the exact opposite. My mindset is. Bring all of them in the house. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to pick up five publications here. Obviously, I'm using the Internet. I'll try to pick three or four of them that are liberal, three or four that are conservative. And then I'm going to sit there and read that one particular case, that one instance, and see if I can find basic facts, factual information in which they all agree. And then from that, try to interpret some approximation of of truth from that. Mm -hmm. But the downside of that approach and trying to – 
recreate my childhood when I was reading the New York Times and Wall Street Journal is that it's it's really laborious and it's very time consuming. And this yes. is one of the reasons why I think even though we live in an age where people have instantaneous access to information throughout the world, um, people read less and less. I mean, every mm -hmm. scientific study has shown people actually read less today than they did 40 years ago. And when it comes to political news, I hate to say it, I kind of understand. And people get beaten down by this stuff and just simply don't want to read it after a while. But my view is you have to because you're living in a free society. You're voting. You have to be an informed citizen. You can't vote for people blindly, which unfortunately I think some people do. Yes. Uh, and so that means you're going to have to take some time out of your life to do this. Um, but do it from a standpoint of, I know what I'm reading when I'm reading it. And then purposely look up viewpoints that you don't agree with. This is very hard for people to do. Um, some of my favorite political scientists that I like to read, I don't fully agree with them on certain issues. But I read them and look them up because I want to understand their mindset and their modus operandi. The same thing should be when you're looking up the media when it comes to a political news story. But it's hard to do. It just requires a lot of time. The average person isn't going to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and spend two hours every morning <laughs> reading this stuff. And I, I can't blame them. I just don't know what to say. Right. But that's my approach that I use. Um, and then in the hopes of doing that, I'll get a better understanding of what we like to call in the legal community modus operandi. Uh, so I can understand the motives of not only the thought process of the people that have interpreted the news, but even of the event itself. So you mentioned the headline. So part of that headline and the and the clickbait is buzzwords. Yeah. How do you think those buzzwords are driving the political conversation? I think it can have different effects on different groups of people. But I think for a lot of people, what's happened is uh, people become discriminating in their news. And this, this is not just even in the news. This is in almost everything in American life at this point, seemingly. I mean, everything is political. Mm -hmm. And so their news has become the same way. So if you're a conservative, uh, you're going to be reading Breitbart. You're going to be looking at Newsmax, maybe Fox News. And if you're more liberal, you're going to be looking at MSNBC, maybe the New York Times, maybe CNN. Mm -hmm. uh, and then what happens is, of course, in the classic case, what we talk about with echo chambers and creating these little chambers where – my point of view is getting reverberated, and that yeah. choir is being sung back to me. And the downside of doing that from time to time is, and I know it's hard for people that are liberal or conservative to accept this, but you're not always right. Everybody's always wrong in some way. We're people. We're humans. And you sometimes might miss some information here and there because your side or the other guy's side has decided to portray it in a particular way. And you can see it. I can tell when I'm talking to somebody about a news event, I can tell their politics without them telling me just by the news source that they used and by the words that they use from that particular news mm -hmm. source. It pretty much tells me all I need to know. It's kind of like when you walk into a barbershop and they got them on CNN or Fox. I, I can already figure out the political opinions yeah. of, of that shop owner. Right. <laughs> and I can tell you, when I was a kid growing up, that was never the case. It okay. just simply was not the case. Mm -hmm. So what's your familiarity with cancel culture? Well, defining it as I understand it today, and I don't know if I'm right or wrong about this, but when I think of cancel culture in today's context, I think of um, incidents that take place in which somebody has said or done something um, that is being interpreted as bad by a group of people, which may be the larger public or just a subset of a population on a social media app or website, but people. And then at that point, there's usually some type of campaign to punish that person, whether or not they're actually punished, because I don't even know if somebody actually gets canceled. They just say they are. Yeah. Um, and then there's some type of meeting out of punishment or justice or whatever you want to call it. And loosely based, that's kind of how I understand what, what cancel culture has become in, in today's society. 
And do you think it has any positive functions or any true meaning in the grand scheme of things? Or do you think it's kind of just something people like to say? I don't think it's anything new. I actually have the view that this historically has a lot of precedence throughout American history. I think you mm-hmm. can even go back to the early part of our country's history. You think about at the end of the day what's really taking place, and you can go back to some of the beginnings of cancel culture with political correctness on our college campuses in the early 90s. When I was a student, when I remember it actually, um, it was understood to be at the end of the day this idea and concept of trying to have uh, mannerisms and speech, okay? And it was done for good intentions. That's really not that unusual of an undertaking throughout history. You go back to the Victorian age, and you go back to almost any age throughout the history of this country and this world, societies do try to put some restrictions on language and do try to have their concept of their culture, their time periods, uh, views and expressions on those beliefs and values to be that of the predominant members of society. That's always there. That's never gone away. I think the main difference between the day and the past, uh, the technology has certainly made a big difference on it. Um, And then the other part about it is there are instances in the past. You could go back to the Red Scare in the 1950s when you had the Red Channels, which was a uh, a private trade publication that tried to uh, get certain actors or celebrities canceled from being uh, actors in Hollywood based on their political affiliations before the 1950s. Um, There were certainly been attempts uh, in the past on both the right and the left in this country to to use some type of, you know, again, at the private level, but a group of individuals at the private level to organize on something to get either a mannerism, a thought process, a belief system to become the predominant ideas of that society and that the people that were on the out group of that, there might be some type of denunciation involved. It's not completely unusual. I think, again, the main difference with it today is I think there's more of it. And I think it's Mm -hmm. primarily because of what's happened on social media. Yeah. You could be a Hollywood actor in the 1950s and have a career, even if somebody said that you were a fellow traveler back in the 1930s of communism, even if you got denounced. Uh, Today, if somebody puts you on a list or somebody says that you've said or done something bad in a tweet on Twitter, people have lost their jobs, Mm -hmm. and maybe deservedly so. I mean, this gets into the other thing. These things are done with good intentions. You know, nobody, well, I shouldn't say nobody. We typically don't try to go after the speech of, you know, the Girl Scouts or or people that we (laughs) like generally in society. It's usually people that have extreme views. Um, But then we have to ask ourselves, what are we getting out of this process? And I can't really give you a good answer. I don't know what we're getting out of this process. Mm -hmm. I guess we would have to ask the people that get canceled for the ones that do what they got out of it. I don't know that if it convinces them of anything, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But I tend to be of the view that it's probably not helping the situation, even if it's something that's considered to be just and the person probably Mm -hmm. deserves it. So do you think there is a better system that we could be using or do you think there's no way to function one that's going to be going to make everyone happy, basically? I don't think there's any way to make everybody happy. The downside of democracies and free societies is uh, nobody's ever happy with the outcome because nobody ever really gets what they want. (laughs) You only get like little pieces of what you want here and there. Uh, So, you know, the alternatives to something like this, well, I mean, if you wanted to really be harsh, there's there's always the government. Their Western democracies throughout the last 25, 30 years have passed uh, speech code laws in which people have been, let's just say, prosecuted for violating 
violating. I think that would be very difficult to do in the United States because of the First Amendment. Right. We have a First Amendment in our Constitution. Most of all these other countries, even democracies, do not. And so the governmental option is not a real option. And if it ever got to that point, something would have to happen to the First Amendment. Yeah. And if there's one issue that pretty much unites liberals and conservatives on the Supreme Court, they really don't like the idea of regulating any form of political speech. Mm-hmm. They hate it, regardless right. of the ideological content of the speech. So that's not an option. So then I guess the only other option is kind of what we're doing now, which again, historically, is not unheard of for us to do this. It's just which group is doing it, under what calls, under what guise. And again, today, I think it's just a little bit more fuel injected versus the past, just because the technology is is driving all of this stuff because the instantaneous access to information. And also, I hate to say it, with the social media, people today sometimes post things that in the past would have been private thoughts. I've said this in the past. I'm very thankful that cell phones were not around when I was in high school. Uh, because there's a lot of there's a lot of forty something fifty something year old parents that has some explaining to do to the kids because <laughs> they sit there and lecture the kids about all the horrible things they're doing and it's like well you didn't have cell phones in the 1980s mm-hmm. that's why and I definitely think there's some truth to that and again I don't really have alternatives other than just either say the government's going to regulate it or b we're just going to be a complete free willing society and then we'll suffer the consequences mm-hmm. of that. I don't think that either one of those are really great answers. And I don't know what to do about the internet other than the fact that it is private. Generally speaking, these are corporations that do this. And because of that, they don't fall under the guise of the or the realms of regulations of the First Amendment, which only regulates speech of government. Mm-hmm. So how do you think that all of this and especially how the internet and social media is playing playing a part in all of the political understanding, how do you think it's going to affect future generations down the road? I don't know, uh, because we're entering uncharted territories because people are, there's like a battle for human minds that technology is partaking in. And it's not even stuff that has anything to do with politics. Uh, We're talking about algorithmic measurements of your speech, private speech, if you've Probably every person listening to this at some point or another has had a conversation with somebody. Your cell phone was in the room, and then at some future date, you open your cell phone up, and there's an advertisement for the very thing that you just talked about. And it's like, mm-hmm. what in the world is that doing <laughs> there? Um, and so this is nothing even necessarily to do with politics. I don't know what the future outcome of this stuff is going to be. I just have to think, just considering human history, it's probably not going to be good. It's probably going to get to a point where there's just going to be more controls that are going to be put on human thoughts. But it's going to be, if it's done at all, it'll be done at the corporate level. And then this gets down to the other problem. In the past, when we talked about speech uh, in public, it was typically in the pre-internet age, people that had those little placards up on sidewalks and stuff. That was public property. And regardless of what one thinks of these, these internet companies today and these social media companies today, they are private. However, they basically are the sidewalks of today when it comes to speech right. compared to 40 years ago. And so this gets into the other debate that, again, I don't see things, I don't have remedies for. Uh, what happens when four or five corporations basically own public expression? of people's beliefs and views. Again, not just in politics, but in anything. And then they begin to put some, let's just say, some constraints and controls on that, either for their own views or because they feel like you know, they don't want to make their brand look bad for whatever reason. There's a lot of different reasons in which they do these things. And I don't have really good answers for those things. Um, the argument for you know, the First Amendment's impossible to make at this point because we've never incorporated uh, any part of the Constitution on, on private corporations. But if a private corporation has more assets than most national governments on this planet, 
I wonder at what point will this conversation ever get to the point maybe we should be treating some of these entities mm -hmm. <laughs> almost like governments in themselves. Yeah. And then to what extent can they do the things that they do, not just on speech, but even on privacy, for example. This is something I go over in my constitutional law class. There's actually, there's a couple of lawsuits, people wanting to try to incorporate those parts of the constitutions on these corporations uh, and have them regulated as public utilities to do that. But I just don't see the Supreme Court doing that anytime soon, mm -hmm. because if you look at the first words of the First Amendment, it says Congress shall make no law, not yeah. Apple, Facebook, yeah, or yeah. a private corporation. <laughs> so it's, it's highly unlikely that that will take place anytime soon. Well, how do you, what do you hope will happen for the future of generations? Do you think that the decline and the, the effects of social media are inevitable, or do you think there's some point where we can turn around and improve? I don't think anything is inevitable. Um, you know, human beings are complex animals, and we respond to stimuli in different ways. And how people 20, 30 years from now are going to respond to this stuff might be radically different than how we're responding. These cell phones are probably going to get replaced with Neuralink or some version of that that will be incorporated with stuff like ChatGPT over time. So then we're going to respond very differently to things 20, 30 years from now than what we are today. So I can't be fully sure what the future is going to hold. All I can see is where things have moved over the last 20 years and see where those patterns might take us. The downside of it is most of the scenarios aren't great because when you have hyper-ideological polarization within a country, if you look at this in the international context, that's usually presaged for something like a civil war or a breaking up of that country. Mm -hmm. And I don't even like to entertain these types of yeah. thoughts. But unfortunately, when I've traveled and lived in other countries that have gone through those types of situations, granted, they didn't have the internet at the time when these things happened like we do today, but they had hyper-political and even ideological polarization in every single case in which people just simply could not share political space based on their beliefs and values. And that's the worst case scenario. That for me is the one that keeps me up at night and makes me worried. As for the other outcomes and possibilities, I mean, I guess the other ones will be at some point, this will just continue, and then at some point one side will win, absolutely. But then the problem is you only have two political parties, and uh, I don't know how that would work. Maybe at some point things get more moderated, but the problem with the more moderated approach is that means both sides have to compromise, and I just don't see that happening anytime soon, because they're being rewarded for not doing that yeah. at this point. Uh, especially on the campaign trail, especially on social media. I can't imagine, you know, anybody, AOC or Trump, getting on there and posting, we need to have a more moderated approach to our politics. It's just not going to take place. So maybe something will have to happen before that takes place. But I can't be sure what the ultimate outcome will be because, again, our society is very different from other cultures and societies. And even the technology, as I speak, is changing uh, to the point that, we might be having political conversations based on something else uh, purely because of the technology changes that are going to happen in the coming years. And do you have any advice to the young people that either are hesitant to engage in politics, are already engaged, but maybe they aren't engaged in the proper way? Do you have like advice on a better way to engage? Well, when we're engagement, uh, we have to ask ourselves, what do we mean by that? So are we talking about engaging people, live human beings? I don't want to sound like your grandma and grandpa, but <laughs> to be honest, um, people interact very differently face-to-face -face than when they do on the Internet. Mm -hmm. So when they're on the Internet, that's when people get really brave. And that's when people yes. sometimes, and again, this is where I think cancel culture comes in, because a lot of these folks get themselves in trouble because they post things on there that they would not otherwise post if they weren't on the Internet. Um, there's no substitute for live human interaction. And um, Dr. Turkle, who is a sociologist, uh, wrote a very big book about maybe seven or eight years ago 
on this and her criticisms of technology. And, and again, you know, obviously she's a little older, so she's going to sit there and say that you kids on the cell phone shouldn't be doing that. But she used uh, sociological studies and statistical studies to show that there's a disconnect between human beings on a one-on-one -on -one level in our society. And that just sitting down in a chair next to a person and talking to them now is something that drastically increases not just your interaction, but your empathy for other people mm -hmm, right. that you would not have if you were just simply over the internet saying how awesome they are, how much you don't like them for whatever political reason or any reason. Uh, there's no there's no replacement of that and I've had a lot of students over the years and I understand because I'm an introvert myself that uh, that COVID is sort of like I don't know locked us up and there's some people have reacted not great to that they just mm -hmm. simply don't want to go out you have to and you have to interact and in fact I think the more you take yourself out of a comfort zone the better all right the more you force yourself to do things that you otherwise would not do the better uh, I would not probably be doing this right now if I hadn't gone to law school because going to law school is what forced me to open up and maybe talk and verbally defend myself. Mm -hmm. If not for that, there's no way that I could teach. Yeah. Uh, and so I had to force myself out of a comfort zone. And so just having discourse is basic. It doesn't even have to be based on politics, just talking to people and not just folks in your age bracket. Again, this is a natural inclination for all younger people like older people. You tend to self-segregate in age brackets. You tend to self-segregate in your peer groups. You tend to self-segregate in almost everything. All age brackets do this. But if you want to understand uh, the modus operandi, as I called it earlier, of other folks, you got to meet them and talk to them. Okay? Uh, and if we're talking about politics, purposely get to know people that don't think the way you do politically. That's really, really hard to do because uh, in my political ideologies class I was teaching I think this was last semester. Yeah, so I went over the phenomenon of people self-segregating and how they date. So in other mm -hmm. words, um, younger people and even older people now increasingly don't date people who don't pretty much think exactly the way they do politically. Yeah. And I understand because that's dating. Um, but on the other end of the spectrum, what are you getting out of that process? All right. Um, getting to know people that force you to come out of your comfort zone, and force you not so much to defend yourself, but to listen to that person, all right? So don't get into arguments with people. That's what the internet encourages. Actually listen to somebody that has a different point of view and trying to understand why they think the way that they do. And you're going to understand, and this is probably the one thing I've learned in my life and all my travels and studies uh, and all the people I've met throughout this planet. Uh, you get two people together, especially in the same age bracket, uh, you pretty much have the same thoughts in the shower. You pretty much have the same thoughts when you're in traffic, especially Spaghetti Junction. And you pretty much have the same thoughts and dreams and hopes in life and the same fears as each other. It's how you want to get there is where people are drastically different. And in getting to know people that have different points of view and perspectives usually gives you a better appreciation from them. If everybody just did that, you'd probably see a whole lot less extremism in American politics. Right. But they don't because mm -hmm. that means it's an investment. That's a time investment of a person to do that. Whereas getting on my phone is very quick and very easy yeah. and convenient for people to do. And again, it's understandable. I, and this is something that all generations do. Again, I want to make this clear. The older people are on Facebook. All right. Trust me, I'm on Facebook. I see what they're <laughs> posting. They're posting all the crazy stuff you guys are posting on Twitter and everywhere else. Uh, this is a problem of our of our society at large. It's no one age bracket that's you know more guilty than the other. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for joining me, and thank you for sharing your time today, Dr. Fry. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Turn on a Dime. But wait, the content doesn't stop there. For more conversations on this episode's content, head over to my blog, 
at hannahosbornebiz.wixsite.com. The blog and website are also linked to my Instagram at turnonadimepodcast. Tune in every Monday at 3 p.m. for more episodes. This has been Turn on a Dime.